Well, good morning, everybody. For those of you who don't know who I am, I'm Dave Ritter. I happen to be Emily's dad, Ross's father-in-law, and most importantly, Ethan, Luke, and Sophia's granddad. And I also happen to be a pastor. Um, was once the pastor at Grace Point, uh, Restoration's mother church, and currently I'm the pastor at Bayside Chapel in Barnegat, New Jersey. And my uh, one of my other pastors on staff was preaching this week, and so when I heard that was Ross was suffering with these kidney stones, I said, "Look, if you're having a hard time preparing your sermon, you want me to pinch it? I can do that this week." And and uh, I guess Friday he called me up or he texted me and said good to do it? And I'm like, sure. So here I am, happy to fill in uh, for your excellent pastor here today. Uh, and continuing in our series, Searching for Sophia. And that's not the search for my granddaughter who's gone missing. Uh, she's safely in the nursery. Uh, but rather, this is the search for wisdom, uh, biblical answers for some of the tougher situations, questions that we have about life. And, and today we're talking about why does God allow suffering? I want to begin by telling you a story about a time when uh, both of my daughters were students at Bethel College in Minnesota. We were living here in Bucks County at the time, and uh, they got to be frequent flyers, getting on a plane and taking themselves to Minnesota for school. And uh, one Thanksgiving, after Thanksgiving break was done, we took our daughter Jill to the airport on Monday morning so she could go back to school and finish her fall semester. We uh, put her on the plane thinking all was well. They were used to flying and, and uh, had flown many times without any issues. It was only later in the day that we got a phone call from Joel saying, I had a terrible experience on the plane. And we were like, well, what happened? And she said, well, the flight from Philly to Chicago O'Hare was okay, although it got in a little bit late, and I couldn't get my latte at Starbucks. And that was you know, a disaster for Jill, if you know Jill. Uh, but she said, then I, I finally got my plane, uh, you know, it, a short turnaround, got on the plane at O'Hare, taking the second flight to Minneapolis-St. Paul, and we had the most ridiculous turbulence you've ever seen in your life. Uh, the, the pilots wouldn't let the flight attendants get out of their seats. We didn't have any drink service, but the worst of it was we were bouncing around like crazy. And she said, normally when that happens, you know, I just distract myself by reading a book. And she said, the, the turbulence was so bad, I, I couldn't even read my book. And I just sat there saying, don't lose it, don't lose it, don't lose it. She could feel her stomach churning. And she said, finally, somewhere over Wisconsin, I lost it. And thank God for airbags, right? And uh, she said, then I was glad I didn't have time to get my latte at Starbucks at O'Hare, because it would have been all the worse. Uh, but she said, it was the, the worst turbulence I've ever had. Well... No one likes turbulence when they fly, right? But we dislike turbulence even more when we experience it in life. And there are these seasons of life when we'll go through turbulence. We'll go through tough times. We'll, we'll have uh, struggles like kidney stones and, and other things. Uh, maybe you're going through one of the, those times of turbulence right now, one of life's storms. It has your stomach churning some health crisis, the death of a loved one. Maybe it's job loss or impending job loss. It's uh, perhaps financial stress, looming foreclosure, problems with the kids, the divorce of your parents, or maybe you're not feeling like you fit in at school or there's somebody who's bullying you at school. It just makes life miserable for you. You know, it's in the storms of life that we're most inclined to question God. 
and say things like, God, where are you in this? Why are you letting this happen to me? Why do you allow suffering in this world? Don't you care? Do you even exist? You know, the Bible has plenty to say about why we might suffer in life. Uh, And at its root, we have to acknowledge that all suffering is a consequence of living in a fallen world. We live under the curse of sin. The sin of Adam and Eve, in which you and I all too willingly have participated, has resulted in everything from weeds in your garden to increased pain in childbirth to disease and death to people doing violence to one another, and that's only the first six chapters of of the Bible, first six chapters of Genesis, and there's a lot more that follows on the heels of the evil we ourselves have unleashed in this world because of our sin. And so sometimes evil is a result of our own sinfulness and our own sinful choices. We reap what we sow. Other times the Bible says that sometimes evil is the result of the evil one, Satan himself, as as Ross referenced earlier in the service. The evil one inflicts suffering on us in an attempt to provoke us to curse God and turn our backs on him. And that was the test of Job in the Old Testament. The evil one inflicting him with terrible things, attempting to get him to curse God. The scripture also teaches, however, that sometimes the suffering that we experience in life is uh, an act of God's discipline in our lives to get our attention when we're going astray, to, to uh, discipline us when we're messing up, just the same way a, a parent might discipline a child, inflicting some kind of consequences because of, of what the child is doing. God will sometimes do that in our lives to get our attention and draw us back to him. The Apostle James, in his little epistle, gives another reason for suffering. He says, consider joy when you encounter trials of all different kinds, because the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and and perseverance must do its work so that you'll be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, you're never going to grow to maturity unless you've experienced some suffering, some adversity in life. The Apostle Paul tells us that when we've come through suffering, then we're able to comfort those who come after us, who suffer. So our suffering results in our ability to more adequately minister to others who are suffering. So there are all kinds of reasons the Bible gives for why God allows suffering. But when it comes right down to it, nobody likes suffering, right? I mean, when we suffer, we tend to automatically assume that God is making us suffer because he just doesn't care about us. When in fact, the very opposite is likely true. So you've heard about some of the suffering of the Manders family recently. Uh, Ross dealing with kidney stones. Uh, little Luke has been sick with the stomach flu. Sophia had it. They, there's been coughs and colds. And on top of all that, a few weeks ago, little Luke had pink eye, about with pink eye. Well, try telling a three-year-old that you want to put eye drops that sting in his eyes and that it's for his own good. And this is the result. Let's show the video. Hang on to your seats. This is disturbing. <laughs> when I saw this video for the first time, I thought, is this night terror? Somebody speak the name of Jesus over this boy, would you? <laughs> this kills me as a grandfather to watch this. It's almost done. Hang on.
I'm sure that there are times when we must look like that to God. When we kick and scream about the things that we go through in life, all the while God is saying to us, Shh, child, this is for your own good. It's the only way you can get better. It's the only way you can be healed. But we too often don't calm down. We strive with God. We demand that he give us answers. We demand that he make sense of our suffering. Did you know that the whole book of Job is basically about that? I mean, it goes on for 38 chapters of Job and his friends wrangling over the question of why is Job suffering? And he's suffering terribly. And Job is protesting in his innocence saying, I don't deserve this. I haven't done anything to deserve this. And his friend's saying, you must have done something really bad for God to do this to you. And they go back and forth, back and forth for 38 chapters until God finally speaks toward the end of the book. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Look, tell me if you have such great understanding how I should run my universe, huh? And basically he's saying, who are you to demand explanations of me? The Creator owes no explanations to those He's created. And essentially, the book of Job teaches us, look, fuss all you want about what I allow into your life. But the bottom line is, I don't have to explain myself to you. Sometimes, like the three-year-old fighting eye drops, you just have to learn to trust, even when He inflicts pain, that your loving Father knows what's best for you. And so, rather than giving us definitive, satisfying answers to explain why we suffer, very often the scriptures teach us the need to trust when we don't understand. So I want you to consider with me for a few minutes this morning a story about a time that Jesus made his disciples go through something that they wouldn't have chosen for themselves. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27 for just a few minutes where Jesus has ordered his disciples to get into a boat and cross over to the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee. And and just before they get into the boat, two would-be followers of Jesus uh, basically say that they want to go with him, but Jesus confronts one with his failure to count the cost. He says, look, have you counted the cost of following me? And, And then he confronts the other for saying, well, I'll follow you, Jesus, but first, I've got a few things to do, okay? And Jesus basically tells them, look, I I don't take reservations for later. You you either get in the boat with me now. You count the cost and go all in, or you don't get in at all. Now, the text doesn't tell us whether those two disciples got in the boat with Jesus that night, but there were those who did, and that's where we pick up the story in Matthew 8, verse 23, where it says, then he got into the boat, And his disciples followed him. He got into the boat and his disciples followed him. You know, oftentimes following Jesus can be just as mundane as that. He says, let's go to the other side of the lake. And he got in the boat, his disciples got in with him. They followed him. That's what disciples do. They follow their master. Now, it would be a nighttime crossing in this case, but that wasn't all that unusual. I mean, at least four of the men in the boat were experienced fishermen. We know that because back in Matthew chapter 4, Peter, James, Andrew, and John had begun following Jesus. And they they knew this lake. Capernaum, from where they were leaving, was their home port. They had uh, often fished on this lake at night. So sometimes following Jesus can feel like a comfortable routine, as it probably did for those guys that night. But you never know when following Jesus might turn into a wild ride. 
And that's what happens. Verse 24 goes on to say, Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. Now, the Sea of Galilee uh, is notorious for this kind of thing. Sea of Galilee is not really a sea. It's a lake. It's a big lake, 13 miles long, about seven and a half miles wide at its widest point. But the unique feature about the Sea of Galilee is that it is 20, uh, 636 feet below sea level. So it's, it's low. And the sun beats down into that bowl-shaped depression and heats up the surface of the lake. And strong, warm currents come off the, the lake, colliding with cool breezes that come in off the Mediterranean, or sweeping down from Mount Hermon, 9,200 feet high to the north. And the cool winds collide with these warm uh, convection currents coming up off the lake, and storms can come up on the Sea of Galilee like that. Big storms. This one's called a furious storm. In Greek, it's called a seismos megas. Now, you recognize both those words, right? Seismos, seismograph, which measures what? Earthquakes, right. So seismos means quaking. And megas, well, when we say something is mega, we mean it's what? It's huge, it's big, it's great. So this is a big quaking. It's a sea quake, if you will. And the waves are swamping the boat. Now, how do you think these guys are feeling about following Jesus now? Right? Oh, let's go to the other side of the lake, he says. You know, sure, why not? No big deal. Get in the boat. Let's go. This should be routine, right? We've done it a hundred times before. And now this. Wind and waves coming over the side of the boat. You'd think that a guy who knows how to heal lepers and cast out demons would know that a storm is coming, wouldn't you? But no, he takes us right into the storm. And not just any storm, but a seismos megas storm. Now, in the passage before this, Jesus had talked about how following him could be very inconvenient. He said, are you sure you want to follow me? I don't have a place to lay my head at night. And here we learn that following Jesus might not only be inconvenient, it could be downright dangerous. He's not one to avoid storms, but to sail directly into them. And frankly, sometimes he'll take us into a storm the likes of which we have never seen because he knows it's exactly what we need. He knows that the best place for us to learn to trust him is in the storm. I mean, think about it. Some people, if they they sail through life and they never have any problems, will never ever feel the need for God, right? It's in the midst of the storm that you, you, you feel most strongly your need for God. Faith rarely grows when all is sunny and calm and the sailing is smooth. So don't be surprised if you find that following Jesus takes you right into a stormy patch in life. When you decide to follow Jesus, you shouldn't expect that all will always be well in the circumstances of your life. And if you're in the middle of a storm, it's more than likely he has you there on purpose. And it's also likely that your faith is being tested. Storms test faith. And if the storm is strong enough, faith can give way to fear. So one of the things I asked my daughter Jill after her turbulent airplane ride was, were you afraid? And she said, no, not not really. I figured, you know, the pilot was probably very experienced and knew what he was doing. But then as we were getting ready to land, he came on the intercom and he said, "Uh, passengers, this might be a good time to take out that safety card in the seat pocket in front of you and review where your nearest emergency exit might be just in case of an emergency. You know how pilots always try to put on that calm And she said, when he said that, 
then it got scary. It's when you're going through turbulence that your faith in your pilot is most likely to be shaken. And look at the end of verse 24 here. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. Well, thank you very much, Jesus, for sleeping in the midst of the storm. I mean, you get the picture? The wind is blowing, the the boat is pitching, the waves are swamping the sides of the boat. Some are rowing like crazy, the rest are bailing water, and Jesus is sleeping. Have you ever felt that way in the midst of the storm? You know, you're operating in panic mode, trying to find a way to survive, and God seems to be a no-show. You're following him right into a storm, and then he goes missing. Your loved one lay dying in ICU, and your prayers for healing went unanswered, it seemed. You lost your job, and God seems none too concerned about hurrying up and providing you another one. The kid you took to church every Sunday is getting into big trouble, and the Almighty doesn't seem to be paying any attention. The Twin Towers are falling. Twenty-one men are losing their lives on a Libyan beach, and God does nothing to stop it. Why does God allow storms? Why is he so often seemingly asleep in the midst of them? Well, maybe you can identify with these guys in verse 25 when it says the disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. I hope you can appreciate the the raw confusion of what's going on here. It's a mixture of faith, tenuous faith, and terror, right? You see both. On the one hand, you see faith, Lord, save us. That's faith talking a certain kind of faith, there's an assumption based on what they've seen him do in the past that he should be able to do something about this storm. Lord, save us. And then fear. We're going to drown! Right? We're all going to die. There's an assumption based on the fury of the storm that they're facing that they're all in danger of imminent death. And I just love the realism of this. I mean, if you're going through a hard time and you find yourself alternating between panic and faith... You're in good company. You can't make this stuff up. I mean, think about this. If the disciples were, were making up the Gospels, as some people say they did, you know, well, you know, they, they just made all this stuff up and, and wrote these stories. Well, if you were writing stories like this, wouldn't you make yourself look a little better than this? I, I think if the disciples had made all this up and it didn't really happen the way they're reporting here, uh, they, they would have written something like... Uh, Verily, forsooth, Lord, the tempest rages, but we are unafraid, having faith that you will see us through. Yea, verily. (laughs) But that's, that's not the feeling you get here. They're pretty much losing it. Get up, Jesus. Do something. We're all going to die. Now, I appreciate that the Gospels are so honest in portraying these men who want to believe, but the storm is stretching their faith to the limit. And don't you just love Jesus' response? Look at verse 26 where it says, He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? (laughs) You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Jesus' first order of business upon waking is not to calm the storm. It's to rebuke his disciples. He sees a teachable moment here. 
There's no sense of panic in Jesus when he sees the intensity of the storm. He's rubbing the sleep out of his eyes and, and the water spraying in his face. He can feel the wind. He can see the water swampy. He can see the guys rowing. He can see the others bailing water. But there's no sense of panic. He's less concerned about making the storm stop than he is about teaching the disciples uh, the kind of faith they should be exercising in the midst of all this. You have little faith, he says. It's not that they have no faith. He acknowledges they've got some kind of faith, but their faith is little. It's deficient. Why are you so afraid? The implication is that there's no reason for panic here. What justifies your fear? You can imagine the disciples wanting to answer back, what are you talking about? Why, why are we so afraid? Don't you see, Jesus? Don't you see the wind? Don't you see the waves? The water filling the boat? We have good reason to be afraid in the midst of a storm. We're all going to die. Don't you see my broken marriage, Jesus? Haven't you seen the x-rays? Didn't you see that pink slip I got on Friday? Didn't you see that foreclosure notice that finally came in the mail? Jesus, didn't you see those drugs that I discovered stuck in the back of my son's sock drawer? Jesus, can't you see I'm starting to go under? I've got good reason to panic. I mean, why shouldn't I be afraid? Jesus says the reason you're so afraid is not because the storm is so great, but because your faith is too little. If your faith was greater, you wouldn't panic over a storm like this. If you really grasped who's in the boat with you, you'd have known this boat isn't going down. As, as he slept in the boat, Jesus modeled for them the kind of faith he wanted them to have. With the storm raging all around him and the water coming over the side of the boat, Jesus slept. How could he? It isn't just that he was so dead tired after a long day of healing people and casting out demons, although he probably was exhausted, but more importantly, he slept in the midst of the storm because he knew that his heavenly Father had a plan for him that was not yet complete, and he had unfaltering trust in his Father's care. Because he trusted his Father completely, he had no concern at all that that boat would sink or that he would drown. It wasn't that he didn't care, but that he knew his father well enough not to be concerned. And that's what Jesus wants for us. A mature faith that remains calm in God's care, even when it looks like the storm isn't going to let up any time soon. When your faith is mature, you don't need the storm to end for your heart to be calm. And that's what Jesus wanted for his disciples. This is what their faith would look like when it was all grown up. And it's only after Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith that he does anything at all about the storm. And that's where the rest of verse 26 comes in, where it says, You have little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up, rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. It went in an instant from seismos megas to Megale Galene. Sounds calm, doesn't it? Sounds like something Hawaiian. Megale Galene. Well, Megale Galene uh, means great calm. And, and this is unusual because, you know, the, the Sea of Galilee is in the bottom of a bowl-shaped depression. You know what happens when you, 
you have a bowl of water and you carry it somewhere and you put it down on a table, what, what, the water keeps sloshing for a while, right? And that's typically what happens in the Sea of Galilee. When a storm is done, the water keeps sloshing for a while. The waves keep going for a little while. And then they finally settle down. Not now. Not in this case. It went in an instant from seismos megas to megale galene. Completely calm. And these people who know this lake know that this is something out of the ordinary. This is totally unusual. They have never seen anything like this. Having rebuked them for too little faith, he wanted them to see exactly who had been in the boat with them the whole time. And so verse 27 It shows us that they're starting to get it a little bit. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Now, they still have to walk with Jesus a little longer before they have it all figured out. In fact, they're going to have to go through another storm with him in Matthew 14 before they're finally ready to say, truly, you are the Son of God. But at least they're on their way. Because of what they've witnessed, their faith is growing. Because they saw him as an authoritative teacher, as one who could take authority over diseases and demons, but now they see him as one who can exercise authority even over the forces of nature. The wind and the waves were threatening them, but the master of them had been right there with them the whole time. See, faith is at its best. When it calmly relies on God's care, even when there is no end to the turbulence in sight. The ride may be upsetting, your stomach may churn, but your heart can be calm in the assurance that your captain will never crash this plane. When a storm blows, you want to be in the company of the one whom the winds and the waves obey. And who is there better to trust your life to? than the very one who is willing to give his own life on the cross as payment for your sins. I mean, if he was willing to go to that extent for your benefit, to give his own body and blood as a sacrifice on the cross so that you could be delivered from the guilt and grip of sin, don't you think he's going to provide whatever else you need in life? Don't you think he can be relied upon to care for you? His love should never be doubted. His care for us should never be questioned. It's been demonstrated, proven once and for all that he cares for us and will go to any lengths to do what's best for us. Who is there better to trust in life than Jesus? Who could ever be more secure, or where could we ever be more secure than in the care of one so powerful that he conquered not just winds and waves, but conquered sin and death? by rising from the grave. And so what it comes down to is this. Calm is not about the absence of storms, but about the presence of Jesus. Calm is not about the absence of storms, but it's recognizing the presence of Jesus. Peace does not belong to those who have no problems, but to those who trust in an all-powerful Savior. The calm you seek is not in better circumstances, but in a mature faith in him who says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Amen.